Hey, everybody. This is Frankie from the Breakpoint Podcast. We want to thank you all for tuning in to Marcus and I discussing our love and passion for the game of tennis. Your engagement and support goes a long way to helping this podcast continue to grow. Please be sure to give us a follow. Rate our podcast on our social channels, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Google, or any other place that you get your podcasts. And on social media, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast 7, Twitter at Breakpoint Pod 7, LinkedIn, and of course, our website, podpage.com forward slash break dash point dash podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so you're the first to know when there's a new episode drop and more people like you can find our podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Breakpoint Podcast, starring myself, Frankie, and my co-host, Marcus. And on today's episode, we're going to be recapping some of the North American hardcourt swing, which has just wrapped up here in the preview, uh, or rather in the wake of the U.S. Open. We have Toronto Masters, which was won by Yannick Sinner, and we have the Cincinnati Masters, which were won by... Novak Djokovic in a thrilling final over Carlos Alcaraz. Marcus, before we jump into what was arguably the best match of the year, uh, or certainly the best three-set match of the year, uh, why don't we talk about Toronto first, just to make sure we don't gloss over it. Yeah, Toronto, Frankie, was a very interesting tournament, and specifically because... One, we got to see Yannick Sinner finally break through and win his first Masters title, which I think was um, which I think was key. And second, uh, Tommy Paul kind of gave people the blueprint of how to beat Carlos Alcaraz, and that's another topic we'll get into also for Cincinnati because he did not have an easy road to the final in Cincinnati either. And I think there's a lot that players are learning about Carlos's game that they're starting to pick at and they're starting to take sets off him. Not matches yet because that's obviously a whole different animal. But they're starting to make him uncomfortable because there's no other way to win against him. Because if you don't do something that makes him uncomfortable, you're guaranteed your last round paycheck and you're going home. So I think those are the big storylines. Um, Frankie, I'm going to let you talk about Jan a little bit since I know that he's your guy. And this is kind of the breakthrough that we've been waiting for. He put on an impressive performance round by round, especially that match against Monfils. That was just so much fun to watch. So what did you see, Frankie, that was different from Jan in Toronto, whether that be physically, whether that be technique-wise, strategy-wise, or even mentally? What did you see from him? Yeah, you know, it's funny. This is the second time now he's beaten Monfi. If you remember, I think it was two years ago at the U.S. Open, he took him down, and that crazy five-set match was really thrilling. So seems to play Monfi well, which is interesting. But So does Djokovic. Anyway. Yeah, yikes. Um, yeah, I don't know if there was anything that was particularly jumping off the screen to me about Yannick other than how clean he played. Like, I this was the first time I've seen him where every single match he played, he probably should have won, right? Like, there was no match that I was like, oh, man, I don't know if he's the favorite to win it. But every single match that he played, he was playing winning tennis. He was like the the criticism that I had of him earlier this year was that he 
is not a guy that wins those crucial points that doesn't know when to just dial it back that little bit to make sure that the ball goes in and he can put himself in the best position to win the point. It was always just guns blazing. And this was the first tournament that I saw that change a little bit. And I saw him play winning tennis, like I said. And 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 I think that that, you know, that mentality change, like you pointed out, is the really the biggest difference and probably how he wins this Masters. The service change, again, by the way, third we're on our third Yonic Center service motion, which is wild to me. But I don't know how I feel about that necessarily yet. Uh, I mean, obviously it worked out this time, but I guess whatever works, quote unquote. Um, I mean, he returned well. His forehand was obviously absolutely dynamite. He was playing really aggressive offensive tennis, which is amazing to watch. But yeah, I mean, the thing that stands out to me is, you know, physically, I'm sure over time, as we've mentioned on this podcast, he will go his body, he'll grow into it and and he'll gain the weight that we've spoken about and the muscle and, and everything. But this was all about mentality. This was all about just playing those tense points right. And he did that. And even in that final, I mean, he just blew him off the court. Just, uh, you know, full offensive firepower and knowing when he can go all out on an opponent that is not as good as him. You know, for me, the real test is going to be when he approaches that opponent that is better than him and he does have to play a little bit more stylistically different. But, man, it was fun to watch him at his just all-out blitz like that. Yeah, I, I for the most part, agree. I think that Jan, um, what now what, I, what I'm personally looking for now is more so the consistency, week in, week out. He did not have a great Cincinnati, but I'm going to give him a pass there because this was clearly a big emotional event for him. Yeah, I don't put anything in the Cincinnati yeah. loss. The second that he won, I was with my girlfriend's family and like I told them I was like oh he didn't pull out of Cincinnati yeah he's gonna lose in the first round that's literally 36 hours after he just won a Masters 1000 yeah and, and the, the the guys on the tour have to play these Masters in order to get a round of bonus money it's kind of stupid but it, it's a whole different topic but that's that's why he went um didn't expect much from him there I'm expecting him to take those 10 days off recuperate and now I'm really interested to see what he should do at the open which we're going to get into later in the week but yeah, I think Jan, his mental game is starting to show uh, physically. He still needs to get there, in my opinion. But um, he just needs to find some consistency, whether that be in the way his, his mental game has been, with the way he works himself before points, before matches, and also with his serve. Uh, he needs to find something that works and that sticks. So uh, I think that's going to be an off-season project for them, for sure. Um, but if they needed to make this mid-season adjustment in order to kind of get him, a, give him a chance of winning a couple more matches, I don't see anything wrong with it. I don't, I don't think it's that drastically different. So um, I'm perfectly cool with that on uh, on that end. Now, um, something that we actually did forget to mention in terms of the Canada Open. So the men were in Toronto this year. The women. In Montreal, Jesse Pagula absolutely smoking Samsonova. 6-1, 6-love in the final. Uh, also taking down Iga, which we'll get into another person who also took down Iga. Um, Frankie, is this kind of a change of the guard now? Now that people are starting to beat Iga on hard courts? Do you see something brewing here? Uh, until I see it in a major, no. Uh, I think... Also, from that tournament, I would highlight Rabakana just got absolutely hosed 
with that scheduling sort of yeah debacle mm-hmm. that happened. So I would really question whether she would have been able to win like that whole tournament if she had actually gotten more than like eight hours rest. But um, it is what it is. That being said, yeah, I mean, Iga, I don't think has ever really been like a terrific hardcore player. I mean, obviously, she's done the Sunshine Double. She's the defending U.S. Open champ. Like that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, totally. (laughs) No, I mean, it's totally fair, but. I, I think that it's never really been like her specialty. I think she's always just been so good, like as a player, just to begin with, that she's going to beat nine out of 10 people on the tour anyway. Um, and now I think that you have these people with bigger serves and everything, like Rabakana and uh, uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of her name now off the top of my head. Samsonova? No, not Samsonova. Um, Sabalenka Sabalenka is who I was thinking Um, people with bigger serves like that you know she has the she absolutely has that vulnerability of being overpowered on a faster court Um, but listen you can't really say that Iga has had a poor North American hard court swing with getting semifinal appearances back to back and you know like that's nothing to scoff at like if anything that's a perfect tune-up for the u.s open you almost don't want to go too deep especially in cincinnati and potentially like tweak something do whatever you know she's going to be in great shape going into uh into the u.s open yeah the only so i agree i think that it's a it's a great summer hardcore swing you're making the semis of two masters 1000s or whatever they are on the on the women's tour yeah absolutely however i am um, not concerned, but if you've lost to two of your rivals who are like slightly below you in pretty high stake matches, I think that gives people a lot of belief and a lot of hope for the U.S. Open because um, on the women's side, it's a little bit different on the men's side because on the men's side, it's like, okay, you beat them two out of three, but but can you do it three out of five? With women, it's two out of three all around, right? And these girls end up always kind of meeting each other in those quarter semifinal matches. Now, of course, there is still a prestige kind of uptick with the US Open then in comparison to the Masters, but I think that this is going to give people a lot, a lot, a lot of belief. And I think that's also great for uh, American women's tennis. We just had two American women win two Masters titles back-to-back, one of them in Cincinnati, which we'll segue to now. Uh, Coco Goff taking out Iga for the first time ever, actually first time ever winning a set, uh, not l- let alone winning a match, and then closing the deal on that Sunday to win the to win the women's final, really spectacular stuff, Frankie. I know that you've been a little bit of a Coco critic, not really too much belief in her. Can Coco swing a U.S. Open? Can Coco make it far? What are we thinking of Coco now? Yeah, I don't know if she'll win it. I think that might be a little bit too big of a step all at once. But I think certainly to get you know into the, I would say at least quarterfinals is is a good goal for Coco, if not the semis, right? I mean, that that's sort of the expectation she should have of herself. And also, I think game-wise, she's as good as anyone on the, the women's tour. Uh, the thing that I'll say about Coco and about even Jesse Pagula, too, who, you know, despite what I just said about Rabakana, 100% deserved to win Montreal, she played phenomenal the entire two uh, week and, and and that whole tournament. She was blowing people off the court, and I'm I think we're both big fans of her and 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 she's she's great. 
I don't know how they will perform against somebody like Rabakana and Iga and Sabalenka in that major setting. I think it's just a different ball game and a different level of pressure. Like, yes, I, I completely agree with your point. For the men, it's very obvious two out of three versus three out of five. And the women, you're just two out of three the whole time. But the level of pressure of trying to beat Iga Sviantek, night session, Ash, because that's what it would be if you're that high up. I don't know, man. Even As if an the American crowd, woman, too, even, if, Open. even with the crowd for you, it almost adds pressure. Like you just said, I don't know. I think it's really tough. I think the thing that separates Iga and particularly Rabakana from everybody else is how tough they are mentally. I mean, Rabakana could be like blasting error after error, and she looks the same as when she won Wimbledon. Yeah, that's true. I just think it's a good, like, I'm not expecting that either. And obviously, we'll talk about that in the US Open preview, but I think it's good to acknowledge that, like, hey, there is a blueprint. She's not completely unbeatable. Um, it's just going to take another level, but they can do it. These girls who are ranked between like five, four, and ten. I think that's that's reasonable to say. Now, Frankie, our final discussion point here is like one of the, in my opinion, one of the best matches just ever. Wait, period. Wait, wait. Before we get to that, okay. Tommy Paul. Tommy Paul. We'll segue that Tommy Paul into Carlos and Novak. Sure. Talk about. I want to hear your thoughts about Tommy Paul, what he did successfully against Carlos in Toronto. And over the course of almost all the matches they played, Tommy Paul plays Carlos Alcaraz really well for some reason. Uh, I think that reason is, Frankie, because I think Tommy Paul is a poor man's version of Carlos Alcaraz. And I'm dead serious about that. I know you're laughing, but if you think about it, really good forehand, incredible speed good serve and decent firepower and is able to counterpunch, is able to be aggressive, has been coming to net a lot more. Um, he just doesn't have the mental game, I think, like Carlos does, and technique and power is, is slightly lacking, hence the poor man's version. But similar body type, I think that that gives Carlos a little bit of problems. He doesn't like playing a similar guy. He likes giving playing someone who gives him a little bit less pace than most of the players on tour, and we saw that a little bit also from uh, his Cincinnati matches against Hubi Hurkash, who gave him loads of trouble. Somebody with a big serve is able to serve and volley. That's why that guy Max Purcell was able to give him issues because he played so unconventional. So I think what people are really starting to figure out with Carlos, and specifically Tommy Paul has as well, is one, if you've got speed, you can use it against him. And two, you got to be able to come in, close the net, and also drop shot against him as well. Kind of play his game a little bit. Most people are not going to have the skill set to accomplish that and to do that. And I think people need to realize that. But if you can modify your game in any sort of way, come to net, serve and volley more, just make him so uncomfortable. Don't let him get any looks from the baseline because we all know that it's just absolutely lights out. I completely agree. I think that that's like a pretty, pretty good observation. I would add that I think in general, people with good with above well above average backhands, which I think Tommy Paul does have. I think Tommy Paul has a really good backhand. I think you're going to find better success against Carlos because that is his weaker wing, so to say. That's certainly what Novak does a lot in their matches. And I agree with you also. I think the serve is a big thing. If you can really pound the serve against Carlos, that's another thing that's really going to help your cause. And 
like you said, Hoopy Hercash, perfect example of that. And that's even why I think Sinner has like relative success against Carlos. Like it's not just the firepower, it's that Yannick has arguably a better backhand than he does a forehand. And service-wise has tremendously improved, and that's been the thing that has helped him out, especially on grass against Carlos. So that would be my notes. I fully, but I, I think that you're pretty much dead on as to why it's Tommy Paul specifically and 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 everything. But, uh, you know, transitioning this to the more important topic now, Novak and Carlos have this epic, incredible match that goes back and forth. One of the longest three sets, ma- three set matches of all time. One of the best you know, I've ever seen. Yeah. And argue, one of the best three set matches ever, period. I think definitely the best this year, but one of the best ever. Uh, Marcus, just just give us sort of a breakdown. What what did you see during that match? I saw cocaine Novak, and then and then we saw cocaine Carlos too with the pickle juice stuff. It no, was so I was good. about to say it's it's not it's not cocaine Carlos. It's pickle juice Carlos. It's pickle juice Carlos. No, but seriously, I mean Djokovic. Um, what makes this remarkable for me from his point of view is that one, he absolutely hates humidity and two, and he hates heat. And this was a combination of both, which is why midway through that first set. And then that second set, he literally looked like he was about to die. Um, and I was like, okay, this match is totally wrapped up, but he, the shade starts coming in. He changes his mentality a little bit. He starts getting into the points a little bit more. Like you mentioned before, Frankie, redirecting his backhand to Carlos's backhand because he knows he owns that rally point. He does not want to go cross court with, or he doesn't want to do anything with Carlos's forehand, to be fair. Um, only, only time he'll ever go there is be aggressive to open up the backhand again. Um, and his willingness to fight and stay in there. And then another, obviously the, the amount of crazy points that we saw was just absurd. And we can talk about that for hours, but just go on YouTube and watch the highlights. It's incredible. What I found something really what I found really interesting, Frankie, was Djokovic's t- tactic in the third set, which probably won him the match. Um, Craig O'Shaughnessy posted this on the ATP Tour website, a little article about why he won. Second serve, serve and volleys. And he won all the points on them. And he forced Carlos, I'm telling you, it's it's forcing Carlos into uncomfortable positions, not only on the first serve with a banger of a serve like a Horkash or a Purcell, if you can even just place that thing well and get to net and not let Carlos have any teeth into the point and make him pass you, you're going to have a much better chance. You're going to get passed at some point. But the way that Djokovic is the, – the the stones that he has and the ability to read that during a match and execute is just incredible. And I think people really – we need to really recognize how awesome this guy is, just period, as a fighter. Um, as a tennis player, as a person, I do question the ATP though, with these long bathroom breaks. I think we talked about another episode because he is taking extremely long, like to the point where, you know, in my opinion, maybe we need to introduce like a a heat rule or like just increase set breaks with the bathroom so that you can do whatever you want and not have these issues. Um, because some saw it as unfair what he was doing, but at the same time, I mean, these guys are battling it out. Just give them a few extra minutes, let them have their, pickle juice or cocaine, whatever they're doing. Yeah, I agree. I think probably should be the same rule as like a soccer where it, 
if it's over, and again, I'm just spitballing here, like if it's over 95 degrees real feel on the court, i.e. like with the heat bounce that you get from the court, which if you're not familiar, anyone who's listening, whatever it is outside, it's probably 10 degrees hotter on the court just because of how the heat reflects right off. But if it's over 95 on the court, you get a five, like you get an extra five minutes or something in between sets. You know, because at that point, you're probably changing every set because your clothes are drenched. So you got to allow players time to do that. Um, I think that the big strategy for me, the second serve was absolutely true. I mean, there was one, I think it was at five, or excuse me, it was at uh, Djokovic was up five fours when he was serving for the match and it was add out to Carlos to get back in it. And Novak just comes up with this 122 mile an hour second serve. If you remember that as Carlos was doing his saber method, which he was trying a lot this match and was actually pretty successful, uh, just hits this 122 mile an hour second serve. Carlos has to fight it off and, you know, resets it back to deuce. So I a hundred percent agree that the second serve was, was really a big difference, but for me, the strategy that I noticed more than anything, especially in that tie break, it was the backhand to backhand rallies. I mean, Novak was just going at Carlos's backhand and saying, I dare you to switch directions, change directions on me. And if not, I will go cross court with you on backhands all day. I will take my odds. No problem. And I think that was the big difference in the tie break. And the last thing I'll say is, Another criticism of Carlos's team. This can't happen with the cramping, dude. You know it's going to be hot. You know it's humid. Give him the pickle juice early. We don't need to give him the pickle juice after the cramps start. Give him the pickle juice earlier. You have to be anticipating these things, not reacting to them. Because Carlos probably lost two to three points in that tiebreak. I would say at least two, if not three to four, because of his hand cramp because he literally could not hit a forehand or hold the racket. He hit a 100-mile-an-hour first serve that was flat and lost that point. If you take those two to three points and you get them at full capacity, all of a sudden we could have a very different result than what we had in that tiebreak. And that is like the big takeaway that I would personally have from this if I was Carlos's team. But in terms of the play styles, like outside of what Novak, I think, did right, I think the thing that is jumping out to me personally is that the ceiling with Carlos, I think, is really going to be defined by what his serve becomes. Because I just don't think that he's getting a lot of free points. I don't think he's getting a lot of easy points off of it. And as we've seen with somebody like Novak, right? Like Novak has adapted his serve to be one of the best servers of all time, by the way. Might be the most underrated shot in ever in tennis history it's either the novak forehand or the novak serve it's just novak yeah like his volley his volley game was also ridiculous on sunday yeah like it's just like carlos just needs to have like that bread and butter you know go-to thing he can control and it's not dependent on somebody else because the thing about his forehand and his movement and everything like that like those are great and like his forehand he can just whip it on demand but the problem with it is is that it takes a lot of effort and the serve is just a lot easier and it's 
you know, you have full control over it. I, I, I think that that is something that is slightly concerning me about Carlos, uh, to be honest. And I say this as like somebody who loves him and thinks he's going to win a lot of grand slams. Um, and I'm literally nitpicking to the utmost at this point, to be honest. But like, if I am nitpicking, that's the thing I'm sort of taking away. Completely agree with every word you said, except for the word concern. For me, it's, oh shit. Because he's so good already. And he still can improve his serve. He still can improve these things. It's kind of like we, when we were watching Nadal early on, Frankie, and we were like, ah, he's just a, he's crazy good, but he's just a clay court guy. And then all of a sudden, he changed his game to flatten out his forehand. Then all of a sudden, his serve got better, and this got better, and that got better. Carlos already has two slams, and he's not even serving his best yet, and he's only 20. And we know that's going to improve. It's pretty incredible. And he's still got a chance to win this U.S. Open, obviously, um, minus a fantastic serve. And he has a great serve. He's got a way better serve than Nadal ever did at that age. So for me, it's not really a concern. For me, it's more like, wow, okay, there's so much to work. Like his ceiling is so high and he's already this good. This is crazy. To the cramps, very concerning, uh, especially given that New York has very similar conditions to what we were seeing in Cincinnati, very hot, humid, um, longer matches, three out of five matches, and very high intense emotional matches where if he plays against a Tiafo, a, a Sinner, something like that. The thing that's going to save Carlos here, Frankie, and what I think both players really struggle with is that these guys always get scheduled for night matches for the whole week or for the whole two weeks. And then all of a sudden they got to play a final on a Sunday in the heat. So they're not, their body's not adapted to it. It'll be interesting to see the scheduling. I think the scheduling of the open for the for the next two weeks, because there can only be one men's night session match, who's going to get the majority of them? Who's going to be burning themselves out more in the sun or who's going to be more adapted to the sun? I think that really plays a role in what we're going to see. Yeah, so the thing that I'll say about that is that Carlos and Novak will be on opposite sides. They will not be playing on the same day, right? So the, Okay, so they'll play night every single so night. They'll, so they should play night. I, you would think they would. But I will absolutely say, like, if Fritz gets a big-time matchup or Tiafo gets a big-time matchup, they will get the night session. True. But um, but regardless, I, I think that what you said is very true because it's not... For me, it's actually not necessarily the hot, the heat and the humidity that's the the thing with him. It seems to be it's the, the tensity and the pressure. And Jim Courier mentioned this when he started cramping the second time in Roland Garros. It, 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 it's whenever Carlos feels that like high tense, high pressure moment, that's when the sort of cramp seems to come on because he's played longer matches. He's played hotter matches and he doesn't cramp. But the second that he's in a tense match with Sinner, a tense match with Djokovic, he gets that cramp. When it's so on the line. Yeah, when it's on the line, when he really feels the pressure he cramps. You got to know as his team that this is a pattern now. It's very clear what the pattern is. We need to be getting him fluids, pickle juice, all this stuff in between sets. Not I, not 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 as the cramp happens in between sets ahead I, of time. 
And I agree. I just don't – I don't even know if that's the solution though. Yeah, maybe, I don't – Maybe it's like a relaxation thing that he's got to do when these moments do arise where he's got to really calm himself thing. and his body down because his – He's clearly just jacked up on adrenaline and then the point happens and then he swings so hard that his thumb just goes doom and like that's it. He just – like you mentioned the tie break. He just completely locks up and that costs him costs him Roland Garros and theoretically – I'm not going to say it costs him this match because I think Joker actually played really, really well overall and I think he deserved yeah, it. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it no. cost him this match but it, it certainly cost him the momentum. And it can cause him a future match if this doesn't get resolved. So I agree he does need more fluids, does need that pickle juice earlier. But I don't know if that's the perfect solution. But the, the point is, Frankie, is that you're absolutely right. The team needs to figure out a solution for this ASAP while Djokovic is still around because Djokovic is the only guy on tour who will absolutely take advantage of this. He's the only one good enough to take advantage of it. Right. Precisely. I mean, that's yeah. that's the real answer. Yeah. No one else is touching. Um, these two. Yeah. I, I I mean, listen. I I don't want to say that because Sinner just won a, his first Masters one thousand. So who knows? But these two look like they're playing a different sport. I'll say that for sure. Um, and yeah, I my the the other thing that I wanted to say to you about Carlos's serve. I hear you. I agree. It is better than particularly his second serve. I actually think is great, and I don't have an issue with it at all. But I don't know if his first serve is as good as Nadal's post-adjustment serve in 2010, right? When he changed his grip and was flattening it out and everything. But at the same time, Carlos has time to make that adjustment. So I I hear you. I hear you. But the thing is, Carlos is... Nadal had the benefit of being legitimately 6-1, you know, and change, right? Carlos is... 5'11 and a half on a good day. So I just don't know if his serve has that high of a ceiling. Like my concern with looking at Carlos and his motion and everything is how is is just how how high that ceiling is. I'm going to fact check you. Is he is Nadal 6'1 listed? No, he is 6'1 and so is Carlos Alcaraz. Carlos Alcaraz is not 6'1. Not a shot. If Carlos Alcaraz is 6'1 then I'm 7 foot 4 and call me Victor <laughs> Wembanyama. I mean that is just a patent lie. No way. I think most people say that he's like a hair under six feet. Like McEnroe said he's shorter than he is. The ATP lists him at six feet. Okay. The Google NBA listed, couple of the NBA listed Kevin Durant at 6'9". Okay. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, they also list they also list Yannick Sinner at like six one and a half or six two, and Jan grew again. He looks like he's six four now. So I think that's I think that's just because he's super skinny. Uh, yeah, but he also grew. They were talking about that. No, at like yes, he grew again. Really? Get yeah, yeah. He's like one of these like super late bl- whatever. But yeah, I I mean it's uh, regardless. I, I, I worry about what Carlos's ceiling is. Nadal also has the benefit of being a lefty, which is just a natural service advantage anyway. But yeah, but yeah, I, we're in agreement. We're speaking the same language here. So yeah, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. We'll catch you guys on the next one, which is going to be a very fun U.S. Open preview. If you're planning on going to the U.S. Open qualifiers, please DM us on the account. I think I'm going to go maybe tomorrow night or the night that this gets posted and maybe Thursday. We'll see. Um, But anyway, it's been fun. 
uh, and we will catch you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. See ya. Thanks, guys.